The Network Live. News, insights, and stories right here on KNEL 95.3 FM and knelradio.com every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Don't miss this opportunity to hear world news, insights, and stories from guests around the world. The Network Live is your pathway to connecting people and ministries. Good morning and welcome to the Network Live. I'm your host, Debbie Rule. Today we'll be listening to a message from Lance Wallnow. Here's Lance. Hi, I'm Lance Wallnow. Welcome to our Bible study. What we're talking about is this is a period of time when God is opening the Word like a treasure chest. And when God chooses to open up the Word, then there's life, there's power, there's favor, there's illumination that comes out of the revealed Word of God. And I just think that this is a season when we're entering a different feast in the church. And most people focus that are Pentecostally inclined, they focus on, you know, power manifestations or people falling down or healings or evangelism. But in fact, the, the real signature of what happened in the Bible during the Feast of Tabernacles, during that last great feast, if you look at the Old Testament, it's it's really described in Ezra, it's described in Nehemiah, it's described in the period of time when Cyrus made a decree and the church remnant began to recover territory, to build God's house and build walls around their survival. And man, if that isn't characteristic of where the church is right now and doesn't even know its own history. But the, the, the interesting thing I want to emphasize is that the characteristic of the Feast of Tabernacles wasn't um, the Spirit of God coming down, everybody getting slain in the Spirit. The characteristic was that Ezra and the Levites opened the book and suddenly the meaning of it leapt out and it impacted the people. That's where that verse comes from. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It comes from the Feast of Tabernacles when the Feast of the Open Book took place. I believe that this whole next revival is going to be a feast of the open book, which will produce open demonstration of the supernatural power of God. The end game is what we're going to be talking about now, because history is moving towards something. And characteristic of what happens with uh, the church is, here's a sequence I want to show you that I think makes the picture really clear. Imagine that there's phases and stages as you go up Mount Zion, as you ascend the hill of the Lord, as you move towards that, that place where you can capture the flag, so to speak, of God's ultimate purpose. And in the sequence of what takes place, there's always a thing called the status quo. So when there's a move of God coming, whether it's in Azusa Street or the Reformation or the Upper Room in uh, Jerusalem, there's a religious status quo, and everybody's parked there. And then suddenly, there is a moment when God releases something new. It's that new element. It's the Holy Spirit poured out in the upper room. It's the Martin Luther, the Gutenberg Press, the printed Bible, and the just shall live by faith. It's Azusa, where they begin to experience the supernatural outpouring of God and 
first century signs and wonders are restored. <clears throat> Whenever the status quo is interrupted by a new element, it's referred to in the Bible as something which is a present truth, meaning it's something right now that God is emphasizing and he's putting supernatural juice on it so that it shows up. When the new element happens, the very first thing that takes place after that is called chaos. That's why I wrote the book on Donald Trump as God's chaos candidate, because Trump was a new element introduced in history that produced immediate chaos all over the world. But God is in the chaos sometimes. Why do I know that? Because the moment the Spirit of God was poured out in the upper room, they were all confused. Look, the first time you see the word confused in the book of Acts, it happens when God shows up. Because whenever God is saying something that's not the status quo, the first thing is you're confused because it's something new. But then in the chaos, in the confusion, there is the practice. Check this out. Happened in the Reformation. Happened in Azusa Street. Happened in the upper room. It's the practice of a new possibility. Wait a second. Something is new in this, and that practice of a new possibility leads to an entirely new status quo. The status quo shifts to a new one. It goes boom to a whole new level. Status quo. Think about your life. You're in a status quo, and then God comes along, and something new comes into your life, something new that's revolutionary. It's a high impact. It's an aha. It's a revelation. It transforms your life. Immediately, there's a chaos in your old world as you start to sort out what the new possibility is for your future. And then you get the new status quo. I should probably write that down up here. Let me put this up here. It's the new status quo. And so the church is supposed to go from glory to glory. But what happens is, and check this out, see if this isn't true. Do you know what a religious spirit is? A religious spirit shows up to keep you locked in the old rather than experimenting with the new. A religious spirit, by its very nature, wants to keep you locked in the step that you're in so that you can't progress to new revelation. By this time, you ought to be teachers, the writer of Hebrews says, but you have become dull of hearing. You've become hardened in hearing. You've become stuck in your listening so that you're, you have again to be taught the first principles. In other words, a religious spirit will cause you to have such an attachment to a previous revelation that you actually resist the next thing that shows up. This is the story of revival. Every student revival knows the previous revival typically persecutes the next revival. The previous move of God persecutes the next move of God. This is history, folks. This is like, you know, I'm not making this stuff up. So, uh, I want you to talk, I want to talk to you about the end game because the end game is the introduction of new elements. The new elements is sheep nations rising, goat nations solidifying, tares are maturing, wheat is maturing. And uh, the church doesn't have language for this. That's why, we're, that's why we're so befuddled. That's why we're so reactionary. That's why we're so nervous all the time because we don't recognize that God is the one who's introducing the chaos so that the church can practice a new possibility. Well, I, listen, we're going to have a lot of interesting stuff that we're going to be covering here. So here we are going into the end game. What is the end game? The end game is nothing less than nations. Nations. I was with uh, Jeremiah Johnson at a very powerful meeting. That's where, by the way, this recording that I, I want you to, to get a hold of. I want you to buy it. I want you to listen to it. 
uh, is uh, from a conference I did with him. And I love working with prophets because there's always uh, the element of the, when prophets get together, it creates a catalytic atmosphere. <clears throat> and, and I got this message when I was there. It's on the end game. It's clarifying what the new elements are that we got to deal with for the new possibilities to happen. God wants you to be in the, in the end game. The end game is going to be nations are going to be uh, for or against Jesus. It's going to come down to for or against Christians. It's going to come down to for or against freedom of speech. It's going to come down to for or against this, the right of Israel to exist. Why do I know that? Well, because Jesus said it. He said that uh, sheep and goat nations are going to be divided on the basis of how they treated his brethren. As much as you've done to the least of these, my brethren. He's not talking about the poor of the earth there. He's talking about his people in the earth. But we'll go to that in a moment. I want you to catch Psalm 2, the signature verse that puts it all together. Psalm 2 is the resurrection psalm. In Acts chapter 4, verse 25, when, the, when Jesus uh, was raised from the dead and the disciples were in the upper room and they came out, they began to preach with great power. And they quoted Psalm 2 as the resurrection psalm. They're the ones that said Psalm 2 is about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So when you read Psalm 2, read it according to Acts 4.25, according to Acts 13.33. It's quoted as the resurrection psalm. Now, why is that? Well, the kings of the earth, in verse 2, set themselves and rulers took counsel together against the Lord. This is your, your deep state global conspiracies that are against what God is doing and the people of God. And notice verse 1, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The heathen are raging. This talks about a period of time when the devil has agitated people because, let's face it, when Jesus shows up, you think it's going to bring peace? When Jesus went into your nice synagogue in the, Old Test in the New Testament, if he showed up, demons are manifesting, healing's taking place, everything gets turned upside down, and, you, and the rabbi has a conflict because there's people against it, there's people for it, and that's, that's the price you pay if you want Jesus to really show up in your life. Chaos and a new possibility. Anyway, there's raging going on. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together. And they want to break the cords, the bands, the authority of the move of Jesus. And so the Bible says, he that sits in heavens laughs. It's, uh, it's futile. And then he vexes them. He starts to take the chariot wheels off of these governments, off of these leaders, off of these movements that are trying to oppose the anointing and the purpose of God. The Lord says, look, I've set my king upon my own holy hill of Zion. I establish who I want. And I will declare the decree. The Lord said to me, now here's the verses quoted in the book of Acts. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. When in the world was that ever said to Jesus? That wasn't at his water baptism. That wasn't when the heavens opened. The Lord said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. This verse says, today I've begotten you. Today I've begotten you. Begotten is a curious word. It means to bring forth, to birth out. It literally means when Jesus was on the cross. Remember he says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. So when Jesus is on the cross, um, and, and he's dying, he says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. So Jesus basically gives authority over his future to the Father. Why? Because he has to die as your substitute. He wasn't dying for his own sins. He was dying for you. If it had been him, he wouldn't have to die because he had never sinned. 
He died for you. And then the Bible says that when he had died, he that ascended first descended. Oh, so that means he says, Father, into your hands I commit the final disposition of my spirit, but his spirit actually goes down. It goes down, and then it's a great teaching we'll do sometime as to what Jesus actually does in hell. Because remember, he's three days somewhere. And then on the third day, kaboom, the Father decrees something, and he comes up out of the grave. And there he is in his resurrection glory. He says, touch me not, for I have not yet ascended. And then he ascends up to the Father to present himself. And then for 40 days, he's appearing on earth with his disciples. You see the sequence? That's why, you see, the Father had to bring Jesus up out of the grave. Because you don't have the power over your own soul and your own spirit to do anything when you die. So Jesus had to go just like you as your representative. Now, what happens? The Father decrees, today I brought you up. This day, you are my son. I decree, I demonstrate by the resurrection of the dead, you are who you said you are. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then notice the next part of what the Father says to Jesus. It's recorded right here. Ask of me. Ask of me. Wow. Ask of me. Ask what? Ask of me. I'm going to give the heathen for your inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. I will give the heathen. I will give the translations there. Or I will give the nations. I will give the geography of the whole earth to you. The Lord says, I'm going to give the nations, the heathen, the earth to you. I'm going to give the earth to you. So here the Father is saying that I want you to ask. But notice, why would the Father say to ask? Evidently, Jesus never asked. That's the fascinating thing. He had never asked for nations. What did he ask for? Well, if you take a look in John 17, he says, Father, I pray for those whom you have given me. For all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Father, I pray for those whom you gave me. Those you gave me. You know who Jesus was praying for? Those you gave to me. He prayed for you. He prayed for his people. He prayed for the church. Father, keep them from the evil. I don't pray for the world. I pray for those whom you've given me. For all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I desire that they be with me where I am, that they can behold my, your glory. They can behold the glory you've given me. In other words, Jesus' prayer wasn't for nations. It wasn't for thrones. It wasn't for government. It wasn't for political jurisdiction. It wasn't for, it wasn't for, the, for the inheritance of the earth. It was for the inheritance of the treasure buried in the field. You know what the Father says? Because you asked for the treasure and not the field, I'm going to give you both. Now here's the mystery. You're going to get the inheritance through your people. The inheritance is going to come through the body of Christ. This is a lot to process, but this is the end game. This is the end game. Ask of me. I'm going to give you the nations for your inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron. You'll dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Well, that's hardly the imagery most Christians have of Jesus. When he comes back, he's not coming back to negotiate and have a peace conference. He's coming back to judge his enemies and, and separate the nations. And so then the advice is, be wise, you kings. Be instructed. Serve the Lord. Kiss the Son. And so this, this powerful psalm talks about Jesus' promise of the earth for his inheritance, which is why in the endgame, we talk uh, so seriously about going to Matthew 25 
and saying, wait a second here, man. There's something, there's, there's stuff that we're missing. There's stuff we're not, we're not digging into. Because in uh, Matthew 25, Jesus talks about when the Son of Man returns. What's he going to be returning to? He's going to be returning to the earth with his angels, and he's going to start to separate, lo and behold, nations. So in Matthew 25, it says here uh, in verse 32, Before him shall be gathered all the nations, and he will separate them one from another. This isn't separating people. It's separating nations. Why? Because evidently nations are going to be adversarial, or nations are not going to be adversarial to the people of God. He will separate the nations. He'll separate the sheep from the goats. And he says to the sheep, when I was hungry, when I was thirsty, when I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was naked, you clothed me. Now, we've always taught this as being principles of compassion, principles of humanitarian values. I mean, I've heard this taught so many times that I actually thought that was what it meant. Thank God for the anointing, because one day I'm reading this, and I'm saying, well, wait a second. It's nations, not individuals. Well, is it compassionate nations and nice nations are sheep nations? That's what's taught. But then Jesus makes a distinction in verse 40. He says, as you have done to these, my brethren, wait a second, my brethren, you've done it to me. As much as you've done to my brethren, in other words, my people. The way that you treated my people was the way you treated me. And I started thinking about that. I said, is that biblical? How do I know that he's talking about, is there ever a verse where it says, these are my brethren? Does Jesus ever delineate and separate? Does he ever articulate one group and separate them from everyone else on planet Earth? Ah, he does. Go to Matthew 12. And this is an eye-opener. When I saw this, I thought, man, I don't think I've ever heard this preached before, which makes me nervous when that happens. But Matthew 12, there's a knock on the door. Jesus is teaching. And while he's teaching, someone answers and says to him, right, let's go right back here, verse 26. While he talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood outside, desiring to speak to him. Matthew 12, 46. Then one said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are outside. They want to talk to you. But he answered and said unto them, who is my mother and who are my brethren? You ready for a second proof? Verse 49, he stretched forth his hand, uh-oh, towards his disciples. Who are his brethren? They are his disciples. They are his people. They are his body. As much as you've done to them, you've done to me. He stretches his hand towards his disciples and says, There's my mother. There's my brethren. For whoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same as my brother, the same as my sister, the same as my mother. It's not just your poor, huddled, tired masses yearning to be free. It's the body of Christ, which tells me there will be nations that when they exact their policies of persecution against the Christians, they'll be hungry. The Christians will be thirsty. The Christians will be strangers. The Christians will end up imprisoned. And Jesus is marking it all down. And the inheritance of nations is going to be to those nations that would not molest, that would not assault, that would not attack his people. And I would add to this. 
because I think the argument can be made that as uh, we're going to see a, the turning of Israel as a promise in the Bible, that all Israel shall be saved, that there's going to be a movement of God amongst Jesus' own brethren, and it will be twofold. It'll be the disciples, Christians, and it will be Jews. And it's almost universal that if somebody hates the Jews, at some point they want to blow up Christians because the two are woven together as the uh, seed of Abraham. <laughs> so, you getting something out of this? This is, this, is, this is seriously potent stuff. So, in the end game, what are we moving towards? Well, we're moving towards the battle lines of who is going to influence the direction of nations. Who is actually, and what you'll notice in the United States and in Europe, is this increasing assault on freedom of speech, hate speech, labeling people homophobe, racist, xenophobe, whatever. And it's the way that the devil is branding so that he can create a kind of a universal hostility towards the people of God. He'll end up, unless we reverse this in those sheep nations, we'll end up like um, the Christians in the first century pushed into the arena in Rome under Nero, blamed for things we didn't do because the public is poisoned in their perception of who we are. And they're actually killing you, thinking they're doing God a service. Well, it's not that Jesus didn't teach it. But there's also an outpouring of God's Spirit. There's a demonstration of God's power. There's a harvest of, of souls, and I would say a harvest of nations that is also part of the promise because Jesus was given a promise of nations. And there will be sheep nations. Right now, I don't know of any. I mean, we have religious freedom. Look how we're fighting over that in, in, in the West right now. But these concepts actually dig so much deeper into that. I want you to go to Matthew 18 and see how you can plug into the anointing um, of what God is doing so that you can take a stand and occupy till he comes. I don't know why Christians are so preoccupied with leaving. Jesus said, be, to occupy till I come back. So we have this, um, this end game that is really going to come down to whether or not the people of God can multiply their power to be able to be an influence on the structures that are taking place. I've taught for years, and I think you guys know the picture by now, but that nations are basically formed by the rulers that are at the top of these institutional mind molders of culture. And it's particularly scary when you consider like China. One guy, I remember a Chinese Communist Party guy said, there's no seven mountains in China, there's only one mountain. That's true. The government is actually the mountain over all the mountains. You can't do a thing unless the government approves. And that's scary. The way in which um, sheep nations will function is that uh, there will be an influence amongst governmental rulers that will not want to molest or persecute the freedom of religion for the church. And I call it religion, even though we could say Christianity, because as they treat any religion is how they're eventually going to treat Christians. So the um, harassment, like I said, of Jews, persecution of Jews is a bad omen for Christians. So, so where there's protection of religion, where government will protect religion, there you see the Christians have done something. They've gone into education. Uh, they've, they've gone, their families are strong and intact. Where nations are going to be sheep nations, you'll see that there is opinion or media 
that is being uh, that is representing the truth and not just the propaganda. So there has to be freedom to speak, freedom to assemble, freedom to um, to post, to write, to blog, to email, to broadcast. Do you know how many people doing what I do? I mean, I've been demonetized. I've been taken down on my ver and various sites for teaching what I'm teaching now. So the freedom of the press to be able to voice your opinion, the freedom uh, in terms of education to be able to have more than one viewpoint, the freedom to have your family uh, governed under Christian values, the freedom to assemble and meet together. The, uh, and then we have the arts community where are you allowed to, you know, in Canada right now, the movie, um, what's the movie that, that uh, on abortion, Unplanned, that just came out. A friend of mine, I'm going to broadcast, I'm going to interview him. He said that they had death threats because they wanted to see the movie, Unplanned. Theaters were shut down because they were getting death threats. Because Canada is one of the goofiest countries in the world right now. Because they're falling in the way of a goat nation. It ain't going to work because there's too many sheep up there. But that's what happens in the arts community. And then what drives it all? Business. I, don't, I still don't think the church gets it. That they don't understand that there are globalists in Wall Street, in companies, in these big companies, and that they are not for your nation state. They really don't want your nation state to exist. They want a world without walls. They want a borderless world. You know why? Because as globalists, they make more money if there's a one world system because they're the titans of industry in multiple countries. So they could do just without the United States and just have a global economy. They love that. The church has to become an invading force that goes to the top of these mountains. And this is God's plan, that you be above and not beneath, that you be the head and not the tail. This is as old as Abraham's covenant. But we never quite knew what that was. We thought it was favor and prosperity and blessing. And almost all Christians want to confine it over here to a revival church gathering over here or where the world somehow comes to our meeting and gets saved. It ain't going to go that way. It's going to happen because we actually go into all the world. We're going to have to be a force that goes into the system. And all of this, listen, all of this, I mean, I've got so much material I'm not covering here. It's all in the end game series. Make sure you get a hold of it. You got to get your mind renewed to be able to see the new thing that God is doing from the perspective of an overcomer. Hi, I'm Lance Wall now, and every now and then I get to do a conference with someone else who has an anointing that when it mixes or when it catalyzes with what I do, it creates a, a, a whole different kind of atmosphere. And you'll find this in life. You'll work with somebody, and when you collaborate with them in the spirit realm, what happens is their gift and your gift come together, and if God called it together, it's almost like uh, it, it creates a crosshairs for like a, a sniper. You can hit the target and see the target for what God wants you to be able to do. We had that experience recently at a conference with Jeremiah Johnson and I working together. 
and I had this download in the evening session on the end game. And it occurred to me that, you know, God is the master chess player. So he, he, the Lord has an advantage of knowing the end from the beginning. Satan is not om, omniscient. He has, he's, he's a genius fallen archangel, but he doesn't know what God knows. And so God has for us in the Bible a coded blueprint for the future. The problem is every generation has people that insist on interpreting the future when they're not even authorized to go there because some things are sealed up until the time of the end. That was what Daniel was told. In other words, some prophetic eyes and voices can't really say what the future is all about until the future generation shows up to whom those things pertain. So the updated end game, what's happening in the world, the nation, what's happening in the body of Christ? How does that affect you? Where are you going? And how can this give you peace of mind in the midst of shaking? It's all there in the end game. You want to get a hold of it at lancewalnut.com forward slash end game. Thank you so much for being with us today. If you would like to hear a rebroadcast of the network live, visit knelradio.com or find our podcast on iTunes and podbean.com. To follow more news, insights, and stories, follow the network live on Facebook. If you would like more information about being a guest on the network live, contact us at thenetworklive.org. The network live will be back next week at 10 a.m. right here on KNEO Radio 95.3 FM and KNEOradio.com. I'm Debbie Rule. Thank you for listening today.